Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. The story of Joan of Arc is one of the most moving stories in history. We covered her story at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and you just need to search the archives there to find that story. It's a wonderful story. This story is adapted from Louis-Maurice Boutet de Montvel, and it's called The Maid of Orléans. Hope you enjoy it. Here is one of the most famous heroines of all time, a sweet peasant girl who challenged kings, led her troops, and died for love of God and country. She was born Joan d'Arc in 1412 in the little French village of Domremy. Her parents were honest laboring folk who lived by their toil. Their little house stood so close to the church that its garden touched the graveyard. The child grew up there under the eye of God. She was a sweet, upright girl. Everyone loved her, for all knew her kind heart. A brave worker, she aided her family in their labors. By day she led the beasts to pasture, and in the evening she sat spinning by her mother's side. She loved God and often prayed to Him. Now, in those days, France and England were at war. France had no real ruler. The English king had invaded the land, determined to make it his own. The French did not want to be ruled by the English, and they fought to put Charles the Dauphin, the son of their last king, on the throne. But the Dauphin had no army, no money, and no will to fight. Day by day, pieces of his kingdom fell away to the enemy. Famine and anarchy reigned across the land. One summer day, when she was thirteen years old, Joan heard a voice at midday in her father's garden. It told her to be a good girl and to go to church. Then it told her that she was to save all of France, and that she must go help the Dauphin. "'But I am only a poor girl,' cried Joan. "'God will help thee,' answered the voice. And the child, overcome, was left weeping. From that day she began to spend more and more time away from her playmates, listening to heavenly voices. As time passed, those voices became more urgent. The peril was great, they said. She must go help the king and save the kingdom. And, of course, when Joan began to speak of her mission, many people laughed and called her crazy. But the simple-hearted folk, moved by her faith, believed in her. A kind squire offered to take her to see the Dauphine. The poor folk, adding their mites together, raised the money to clothe and arm the little peasant girl. They bought her a horse, and on the appointed day she set out with a small escort— "'God keep you!' cried the multitude. And they wept. The enemy held the country through which the little party was to pass. They had to travel at night and hide through the day. Joan's companions, alarmed, spoke of turning back. "'Fear nothing,' said she. "'God is leading us.' On the twelfth day they arrived at the court of the Dauphin. At first it looked as if he would not receive the inspired girl. But at last an interview was granted— one evening, by the light of fifty torches, Joan was brought into the great hall of the castle, crowded with all the nobles of the court. She had never seen the Dauphine. To see if God were really guiding her, as she claimed, the Dauphine changed places with one of the noblemen in the crowd, and disguised himself in plain clothes. But Joan singled him out among the multitude at once, and knelt before him. "'God give you a happy life, gentle Dauphine,' she said." "'I am not the king,' he answered. "'Yonder is the king.' "'You are he, gentle prince, and no other,' she replied with perfect confidence. 
Then she told him that God had sent her to him, and asked for troops to save the city of Orléans, which lay under siege by the English troops. Everyone knew that if Orléans fell, France would be lost. The king hesitated. The girl might be a sorceress. He sent her to be examined by learned men. For three weeks they tormented her with their questions. When they told her that God should have no need of men-at-arms to deliver France, she drew herself up quickly. "'The soldiers will fight, but God will give the victory,' she said. The people declared that the maid was indeed inspired, and the learned and powerful were forced to yield to the multitude. The French troops assembled. On Thursday, the 28th of April, 1429, the little army moved forward, led by Joan, she was clad in glistening armor and carried a white banner embroidered with the lilies of France. When she entered Orléans, the people crowded to meet her. She passed by torchlight through the city. Men, women, and children thronged to get nearer, stretching forth their hands to touch the inspired maiden's horse. Joan spoke kindly to them, promising to deliver the city. Her confidence influenced everyone around her. The people of Orléans, so lately timid and discouraged, now wished to hurl themselves at the enemy. Joan, meanwhile, had letters thrown over the walls of the city, ordering the besieging English to depart and return to their own country. They answered her with insults, so Joan mounted her war-horse and led her soldiers into battle. Around Orléans stood the forts which the English held. The French now captured them one by one. Soon all but the last was taken from the enemy. Its walls were forbidding, and the French generals wanted to wait for more soldiers before making an attack, but Joan pushed them on. The fighting was fierce. At one point Joan descended into a moat and was raising a ladder against a parapet when an English arrow struck her between her neck and shoulder. She fell backward into the trench, and, thinking she was killed, the English rallied. But the brave girl pulled the arrow out of the wound and was soon foremost in the fight again. "'Forward!' she cried. "'All is yours!' The English were routed, and Orléans, which had been besieged for eight months, was delivered in only four days. The maid of Orléans, as she was now called, hastened to the court of the Dauphin. She desired at once to take him to Reims, where he could be crowned. He received her with great honors, but refused to follow her. He accepted the devotion of the heroic girl, but did not want her generous efforts to disturb his easy life. Instead, he sent her to attack the places still held by the English on the banks of the River Loire. In battle after battle, the French were victorious. Joan was always in the front of the ranks. She constantly exposed herself to blows and was often wounded, but would never use her sword. Her only weapon was her banner, painted with the lilies of France. At last the Dauphin agreed to proceed to Reims. On the 16th of July, he entered the town at the head of his troops. The next day, in the cathedral, with Joan standing at his side, he was crowned Charles Seventh of France. But after the coronation, Joan seemed to lose her power. She began to lose battles. While defending the town of Compeg, her army was driven back. During the retreat, Joan, deserted by all, found herself nearly surrounded by the enemy. She parried the blows of her assailants, steadily retreating until she reached the walls of the city. A step more and she would have been safe inside, but through either jealousy, imprudence, or treason, those who were defending the entrance to the city closed the gates and raised the bridge, leaving Joan outside, abandoned, and she fell into the hands of the English. 
"'ashamed at having been beaten so many times by a mere girl, "'her captors accused her of sorcery. "'They dragged her from prison to prison "'and finally shut her up in a dungeon at Rouen. "'They brought her out for examination as many as sixteen times, "'worried her with all sorts of perplexing questions, "'then shut her up again. "'They used torture to make her confess that heaven had not sent her. "'Many of the English believed that while Joan lived they would be defeated, "'so they clamored for her death.' a tribunal composed of bribed French priests was given the power to try her as a witch and a heretic. The unhappy maiden could oppose the insidious questions of her judges only with the uprightness and simplicity of her heart. "'I have nothing more to do here,' she said. "'Send me back to God from whom I came.' After a long trial and painful imprisonment, Joan was condemned and sentenced to be burned at the stake. And throughout her ordeal— King Charles of France, who owed her so much, made no attempt to help her. On the morning of May 30th, 1431, at nine o'clock, Joan rode through the streets of Rouen in the executioner's cart. On seeing the pile placed in front of the old marketplace, a cry escaped her. "'Ah, Rouen! Are you then to be my last home?' she exclaimed. She knelt and prayed. Then, turning to her judges and enemies, she begged them to have a mass said for her soul." She mounted the pile, and while they bound her hands, she asked to be shown a crucifix. Then they lit the fire. In the midst of the clouds of smoke and lurid gleam of flames, she forgave all and said her last prayer. Everyone present wept, even the executioners and the judges. It is said that many turned away, unable to bear the sight, and as they fled, cried, We are lost. We have burned a saint. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter, Jennifer Grant, and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Our next story is called Charlemagne and the Robber Knight. It's adapted from a retelling by Mary Frary and Charles Stebbins. In this old German legend, we find true force of character, the kind that leads by example, pulling others upward. Charlemagne, also known as Charles I, 
king of France and emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, established a cultural revival that laid the foundation of European civilization in the late Middle Ages. And now our story, Charlemagne and the Robber Knight. Once the great king Charlemagne built a magnificent palace on the river Rhine, where he could watch the waters slip past and gaze on the distant hills and hunt with his friends in the deep, green forests. When the castle was completed, he went to visit it. The very first night he slept there, an angel appeared in his dreams. It stood by his bed, clothed in splendid light, and said, Arise, good emperor, arise, go forth secretly, and steal. Charlemagne woke, much puzzled at the dream. It seemed impossible that an emperor should be ordered to become a robber, so he lay down and went back to sleep. But the angel reappeared again. Arise, emperor, it said, go forth and steal from your own people. Again Charlemagne woke, aghast at the command. He still could not believe such an order could come from an angel, so he didn't move. Once more the angel appeared by the side of his bed. It stretched forth its hand, saying, Arise, do not tarry, go into the forest and steal, or repent forever. Charlemagne rose and passed quietly through the halls of the castle. His knights were fast asleep. He went to his stable, saddled his horse, armed himself, and rode silently into the depths of the forest. As he was going along the dark way thoughtfully, he heard someone approaching, and he soon perceived it was a knight clad in black armor. Charlemagne could think of no good reason why a knight should be riding at such an hour, so he challenged the man. "'Where are you riding, and upon what mission at this time of the night?' he demanded. The knight did not answer, but put spurs to his horse and charged the emperor. Seeing his movement, the emperor did likewise, and the two met with a violent shock. Both were unhorsed, and in the hand-to-hand conflict which followed, the emperor got the better of the unknown knight, and brought him to the ground. With his sword at the stranger's throat, he demanded his name. "'I'm Elbegast,' he replied, "'the robber knight, who has committed many a bold deed. You are the first who has had the power to overcome me.' "'Arise,' said the emperor, without revealing who he was, "'and come with me. I am on a mission like thine own.' Without hesitating, the robber knight joined his conqueror. They rode through the forest until they reached a stately house. It was the home of Arnaud, one of the emperor's most trusted ministers. Elbegast was not long in gaining entrance. Bidding his companion to wait for him outside, he stole noiselessly into the house. As he approached the minister's bedroom, the sound of voices in earnest conversation came to his ears. He listened, and heard Arnaud disclose to his wife a plan for the murder of the emperor himself on the following day. Forgetting his purpose for breaking into the house, the knight made his way hastily back to his companion, and begged him to go at once to Charlemagne and inform him of the coming danger. "'Why not go yourself and tell him?' asked the emperor. Elbegast hung his head. "'I would gladly do it if I could. A man like me, who has committed evil deeds, dares not seek out the emperor. I would risk imprisonment to save his life, but it would do no good. The emperor would scarcely believe a man with my reputation.' "'But I tell you this, whatever I have done, "'I hold great admiration for the man who has never been conquered in battle "'and who has always worked for the good of his people. "'He rules wisely and kindly, and I would keep him from harm.' "'Then Charlemagne and Elbegast parted, 
one returning to his stronghold in the mountains, and the other retracing his steps slowly and thoughtfully to his palace. On the morrow, Arnaud and his conspirators attempted to carry out their plans, but the emperor was ready for them. As they came riding into the castle courtyard, the gates slammed shut behind them, and a dozen guards sprang forth. "'What kind of greeting is this for someone who has come to pay his respects to the emperor?' Arnaud demanded, with pretended indignation. "'What kind of greeting do you bring when you come to pay your respects this way?' asked one of the guards. As he spoke, he tore the clothes of Arnaud and his companions, disclosing their hidden daggers. Charlemagne took all of them into custody, and they confessed their plot against him. The emperor then set his mind upon Elbegast. He sent a message to him, requesting him to come to the palace. "'I, Charlemagne, emperor of Germany,' his message ran, "'would speak privately with Elbegast, the robber knight, "'and promise him safe conduct to and from my castle.' Elbegast rode to the palace and was admitted to the private council chamber. Soon a man entered, clad in armor, and Elbegast recognized the knight who had been his companion the night before. Elbegast, said Charlemagne, you recognize me, and yet you do not know me. Then Charlemagne raised his visor, and the robber knight saw that he was standing in the presence of the emperor. You have done wrong in the past, said Charlemagne. "'but now you have done me faithful duty. "'Here is your chance to begin your life anew. "'I offer you a place among my retainers. "'A man of your courage and loyalty "'is worthy of a place in the emperor's service.' "'Elbegast was so moved that he could hardly speak. "'Charlemagne was the only man "'who had ever been able to defeat him in battle, "'and for this he admired him greatly. "'But more than this, "'he stood in awe of the emperor's reputation "'for kindness and wisdom.' And so Elbegast, the robber knight, was disarmed by Charlemagne's own character. He willingly forsook his evil life in the forest and became a devoted friend to the end of his days. And in commemoration of the angel's visit, which had caused him to find this loyal knight, Charlemagne named his new castle Ingelheim, meaning Angel's Home. Thanks for joining us for these two great short stories. The Maid of Orléans, and Charlemagne and the Robber Knight. Hope you enjoyed them. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have the time, please do take a moment and send us a kind review. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. New episodes come out every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.